to have you all tonight. Again, a welcome to those who are watching online. I want to remind you again that there is a handout, uh, and the handout is helpful for following in the class. So the handout can be found online at our website. If you go to the Monday Night Meeting page, you can download it there. Well, let's go ahead and begin our time with prayer and ask for the Lord for His help as we consider this topic tonight. Let's pray. Father, once again we acknowledge our need of You. We need You, by Your Spirit, to be present and to take the words that You spoke through Your Word and to make them alive and to apply them to our hearts. And Father, we ask that it would be more than just information tonight, but there would be power, power through your word, that we might respond, that we might live differently. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've been noticing over the last three weeks that God and His sovereignty has so ordained history, particularly the biblical history of the Israelites, that he's put within that history events that point forward in time, that picture, that illustrate certain truths about the Christian life, that point forward to Christ and what he has done for us. And as we progress in this study, again, my burden has been to paint a picture of the Christian life. Now, in eight sessions, we're not going to paint a comprehensive picture of the Christian life, but I want to point towards some of the elements that make us different, that make us distinct, and answer some of the questions like, what ought to set us apart as God's people? What is it that should characterize our lives? What makes us distinct in this world in such a way that we truly are light in the darkness, that we are salt in this world that needs saltiness, right? And so we've thought about a few different lessons so far. The last three three weeks, we've looked at Jacob's Ladder, that we are those who confess and who publicly confess that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. That's something very unique about Christians and that those, the people of God. We actually confess that, right? That Jesus is the only way. There's no other way to the Father, Secondly, we are those who welcome His reign, Jesus' reign in our lives. That is, we we submit to His Lordship. He is our Master. We have taken refuge in Him. And we welcome His rule. Like we, we actually want to do what He asks us to do. Like we want that. And third, we noticed last week that we are those who trust in Jesus for all of our needs. That is, the life that we live is a life of faith. But that faith in that word, we can use it a lot in it. What does it mean? Well, it means that we daily, hourly, moment by moment, we trust. Like we depend on Jesus Christ. We go to Him consciously. We talked about that last week. But tonight, I want us to consider one of the most popular pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, and that is the Passover. And what flows out of the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And although this connection is made several places in the New Testament, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to look at the connection that is made in 1 Corinthians 5 because it's quite a fascinating connection uh, that is being made right there and I think very applicable to us and to our lives. Now generally I start in the Old Testament and go towards the New Testament. I'm going to just get us situated in the New and then go back to the Old and then we'll come back to the New, okay? So... Hopefully you won't feel the whiplash too badly. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8 tonight, but I want to set the context up. Paul is addressing a case of gross immorality. You think of all the text in the Word of God that we could be looking at tonight. This text, yes, this text. There is this immorality within the church of Corinth. A man is living in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And instead of dealing with this overt sin, the Corinthians have turned a blind eye to it. Instead of feeling shame, they're, both, they're boastful, they're proud, they're arrogant. They're, they're, they're not dealing with this sin in the midst. And so Paul gives them some clear instructions. They are to excommunicate. They are to put out this man out from the assembly. 
uh, and they're, they're to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But what is the goal in doing all this? Just to punish the man? No. The goal is to restore the man. The goal is that he might be led to repent, right? That is the goal. And so this is the context of the passage that we're thinking about tonight. And the passage is in, uh, follows what, he, what, what, what I just mentioned here, verse 6. Are you with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. He reads, we read, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened for Christ. Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so it is in this context that Paul makes this connection back to the Old Testament, back to the Passover, back to the feast of unleavened bread. What is his point? Well, he begins, you see in verse 6, and just very quickly, you see the point in in verse 6, that he he quotes a proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And his point is clear that this sin, if tolerated in the church, is going to spread and it's going to destroy the moral purity of the church. And so it must be removed. And to drive his point home, he points to the Passover and he points to the unleavened bread. So what we want to do tonight is we want to go back to Exodus chapter 12. And we're, we're really asking ourselves two questions. First of all, what is the relationship between Passover and the cross of Jesus Christ? That's the first question that we're going to kind of soak in. Okay, what's that connection? And then secondly, what's the relationship between Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5 and how does that apply then to our life, the Christian life? So we're, we're doing multiple things tonight. I'm sorry. This is what we do. I shouldn't apologize. This is the Word of God, and it's rich. And I want you to see the richness in the Word of God. So back to Exodus chapter 12. If you turn there with me, we're going to be looking at most of this uh, chapter. The context is similar to the context that we considered last week. The people of Israel, remember, they they are slaves in Egypt. And they have cried out to God in their bondage, and God has heard them, right? And he has sent them a deliverer, Moses, to bring them out of Egypt. And Pharaoh's obstinate. He doesn't want to let them go. And so through a series of ten plagues, God decimates the land of Egypt. And we are thinking particularly about this tenth plague. The night of the tenth and final plague is known as Passover. And there really is no... I would say there's no more important event recorded in the Old Testament than Passover in terms of its effect on the history uh, of the Israelites. Passover is so foundational to the history of the Israelites that we are told here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which we will not read, but we are told that it is to determine the very beginning of the year for them. That is, Passover is to be the beginning of months. It is the beginning of time. They are to reset their clocks, in a sense, with Passover, because it is so foundational. It is a new day that is going to completely transform their experience. Now, we want to think about four things. I'm going to break this passage into four parts, and we're going to read each section and then make a few comments. First, we look at the choosing of the Lamb. The choosing of the Lamb, and that's verses 3 through 5. Let me read this section. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the lamb, excuse me, now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So some specific instructions as to the selection of the lamb. First, it must be a lamb or a kid goat. There's two options here. Uh, It must be without blemish. And then we are told it must be one year old. You're with me so far? This is the selection of 
this lamb. And, and you note that there is a focus on the lamb. In fact, this whole passage focuses our attention on this lamb. Secondly, they are to kill the lamb. Okay, beginning in verse 6, we read how they are to do it. You shall keep it until the 14th day. So on the 10th day, they are to choose it, select it, wait four days, and then kill it on the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So they are to kill the lamb. Uh, The word kill is an interesting word here. It's not the usual word in Hebrew for kill. It's this more unusual word, shachat, which means to slaughter, usually in a sacrificial way. And there's a fascinating connection with a few stories before it because this word has only been used twice in in Genesis prior to this occasion. Fascinating stories. Let me just tell you which stories they are and you can look them up. First is the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, uh, being called by God to do that. And the second one is when Joseph is sold into slavery and the brothers of Joseph take blood and they shahat, they, what's the word, shahat, an animal, a goat, and they dip, they dip the tunic in blood and they send that to their father. And they say, we don't know what happened, but here's your son's tunic. Two stories. Okay, you look them up. You think about the connections, fascinating connections. But what? Um, why all this bloodshed? You, know, you think about all these lambs. You think about two million people, enough lamb for two million people, all this bloodshed at twilight, everyone slitting throats. I'm sorry. Um, but blood, a lot of blood. Why? Well, God is making a point, Okay. And the point he is making is a point that he's made from the very beginning of the Bible. From Genesis chapter 2 on, we see that God deals with sin very seriously. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't wink at sin. God is a holy God. He is a just God. And he will punish sin. And what is the punishment for sin? What is it? Death, right? Death is the punishment for sin. So through the Passover instructions, God is communicating an important lesson. And the lesson I find that is fascinating here is that the recipients um, of God's judgment is not just the Egyptians, but it is also the Israelites in some sense. They are both, uh, they both deserve God's judgment. But the, the Israelites are not more righteous, right, than the Egyptians, The only difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians is that God provides a substitute for the Israelites. That's the only difference. But all the firstborns deserve to die. Does that make sense? Uh, All of them deserve it. Okay. Third point, applying the lamb. I want you to know, let me read here verses 7 through 11 because... This section's important. Moreover, they they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it until morning, but whatever is left until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So note the application of the lamb. And I want you to note that the lamb here is to be applied in two ways. It is to be applied outwardly, but also inwardly by eating. You know, note the constant repetition of the word eat, eat, eat. You're to eat this lamb. Okay. Think about the outward uh, point here, that the blood is... Uh, the blood on the doorframe is the evidence that, yes, a lamb has been killed in this home, you know, this household. Uh, so it's the evidence of death, the evidence of bloodshed, and it therefore protects that home. But think about the application of it inwardly. Not only does it protect the home, but it is also to be eaten, that it is to provide nourishment to the people in the home. I find that fascinating. They are to eat it with an expectant, believing attitude, ready to leave Egypt, right? This is God's final delivering event, right? The Passover. They are going to leave the next day. They're finally leaving Egypt. So think about this. The same lamb that protects life from death also gives them strength to begin their new journey with God. Think about this, that 
Israel walked out of Egypt the next day burning calories that they got through the lamb. The lamb energized their walking out of Egypt. Does that make make sense? That's huge. It's hugely important for us to grasp, but we're not going to make the connection just yet. Okay, we're getting there. But you can start to grasp that already. Finally, there is a need for a lamb. Why do we need a lamb? Well, verse 12 tells us why we need a lamb. He tells us, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that day. And note this emphasis on the word will. I will go through the land of Egypt. I will strike down all, not some, but all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Why is a lamb needed? Well, God is coming to execute judgments. Literally, it reads, God is coming to do justice. That's what he's coming to do. He's doing Justice is doing what is right. It's to act fairly. God has given um, Pharaoh repeated opportunities to let the people go. And Pharaoh has obstinately refused. And he's disobeyed God's word of command. And now the time is up. And God is coming to do justice. Note that doing justice means the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Note that this is not restricted in any sense ethnically. This is not the Egyptian firstborn in the land of Egypt. It's all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The restriction is geographic, not ethnically. All deserve to die. And they will all die. All the firstborn will die either in reality or representatively through the Lamb. Does that make sense? Through the substitute. All right, God has revealed His determination. Now, I want you to see this uh, because it's very carefully structured, verses 12 and 13. We read verse 12, I will go, I will strike, I will execute judgments. And then it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And then verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now think about the beautiful structure there. Because what is it that separates the I will of judgment with the I will of mercy? What, what separates the two? Blood, right? The blood of the lamb. It's nothing but the blood that separates judgment from mercy. Imagine a family. The father, the mother, the children, they're all gathered on the night of the tenth plague. They've slaughtered the Passover lamb. They've put the blood on the doorpost. They've eaten the meat. And now they are huddled there in the dark. They can't sleep, you know. I mean, would you be sleeping on this night? I wouldn't be sleeping on this night. And there they are together and they begin to hear perhaps shrieks in the distance coming from where the Egyptians live. And the cries become louder as more homes are struck. And the son turns to his father in fear, wondering if he too will perish. But the father puts his hand out on the son and says, Don't be afraid, son. Don't be afraid. God promised that when he sees the blood, he will pass over us. It's wonderful, isn't it? What a wonderful picture. You see, what ultimately distinguished those who perished from those who lived had nothing to do with whether they were an Israelite or an Egyptian necessarily. It didn't have to do with their status. It didn't have to do with their finances. It didn't have to do with their respectability or even their morality. It had everything to do with whether or not a substitute lamb had been sacrificed in their place. That's what it had to do with. There was either mercy or there was judgment. And the only difference is that substitute. Okay, well, what are the implications for us? What, how do we point this to Christ? How do we uh, move to Christ here? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? This picture is so clear, but I want to make it absolutely specific. See, you might be asking yourself the question, what does this have to do with me? I am not a slave in Egypt. God is not coming to judge me tonight. Well... We don't know that, actually. But listen to the Word of God. 
This is John 8:34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And then listen to Jude, verses 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to what? Execute judgment, to do justice. And so you see, friends, our condition is far more serious than that of the Israelites because they were just slaves of Pharaoh, but we are slaves to sin. They were just in fear. They were just in danger of physical death, but we are in danger of eternal death. And there's something much greater at stake for us in our lives. So the story has everything to do with us because the only thing that has ever stood between a just God and a sinful people is blood. That's the only thing that has ever stood between those two things. And we desperately need blood, but where are we to find that blood? Where are we to find that blood? Are we to go find a lamb and sacrifice it and throw blood on our houses? No. God has provided for us a lamb, has he not? And his name is Jesus, God's beloved son. You see, God gave his firstborn son and there was no substitute for him. He died. He actually died for us. The Passover story points forward in time. Let's think about some of these implications. Think about the selection of the lamb. When Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing said, There's the Lamb. There he is. And then Jesus was a, a person, a man, who was absolutely without blemish. He was God's Lamb. We are told in 1 Peter that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was absolutely without blemish. So there's the selection of the lamb. Think about the killing of the lamb. Jesus came to die a sacrificial death. He came to die a substitutionary death. That is, he died in our place. He died for us. And so that no one would miss the point, God sovereignly ordained that his son should die on the feast of Passover. (laughs) Boom! There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about the application of the Lamb. Jesus' death is applied both outwardly and inwardly. Yes, it protects us from God's wrath, but it does more than protect us from God's wrath. It transforms our lives. It nourishes us. We talked a lot about that last week, about the nourishing aspect, right, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It delivers us not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. We're going to talk about this more tonight. This is kind of the point that we want to make because it's the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 5. What's the point? We as God's people are those who actively seek to eradicate, to purge sin out of our life. And why can we do that? Because a sacrifice has been made on our behalf that not only protects us from God's wrath, forgives us of our sin, but energizes us from within and enables us to walk out of Egypt, to walk away from our slavery. Finally, though, why is there a need of a lamb? Well, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when God is going to go not just through the land of Egypt, He's going to go through this entire world. And the Bible speaks of it as a day of judgment. It is a day when God will do justice. He will render to every single human being according to their deeds. It's a day that's coming. And so we need a lamb. But the promise of the gospel echoes in Exodus 12.13. Look at Exodus 12.13 again. That when God sees the blood of His Son applied to our lives, what is His promise? He says, I will pass over you. I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That is the hope that a Christian has. That if the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to your life, if it's applied to my life, there is no fear of judgment. There is no condemnation. That when that day comes, He will pass over us. And no plague will befall us. What a wonderful truth. 
Well, what does this have to do with leaven? See, we've got to make some connections here. We've got to build all of our... It's like you know, building a sand castle and getting it, all the pieces together before you can go, boom, there it is. <laughs> you know? So what about the leaven? Because it's so critical for understanding of 1 Corinthians 5. Well, let's keep reading verses 14 to 20. It's a longer section, but I want us to read it. And I want you to pay attention as we read it to how much it talks about unleavened bread. So just a repetition is important here. Verse 14. Now this day, with me, Exodus 12, 14, this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Note the the language of celebration and feast. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days for a solid week after Passover, you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day, you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly. And another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone uh, may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread. You're getting the point, like he's saying it over and over. And, like, don't miss this. You need to eat unleavened bread all the way to the 21st day. You know, he said it, he said it through a week, then he said it with the, you know, from the 14th to the 21st. I said, don't miss this point. Eat unleavened bread. Seven days, there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's an alien or a native of the land, you shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings, here's the positive, you shall eat unleavened bread. Whew! Emphasis is important. Repetition is important. There's something very important that God wants to communicate here. Let's think about this in terms of the context here, and then we'll move to 1 Corinthians and make that application. First of all, note that the dominant characteristic of this feast is the absence of leaven. Okay? Here, once a year, they're to get rid of all their leaven. Now, just to be clear here, in the ancient world, they did not use yeast. They did not, when they wanted to make bread, they didn't open their freezer and pull you know, a little bag of yeast out and put it in their bread and knead it in because they didn't have freezers and yeast was actually pretty rare uh, back in those days. But what they, what he's probably talking about here is more what we would consider to be like a sourdough starter, where you would put a little bit of water, a little warm water with some flour, and it would start to ferment. And when you want to make a batch of bread, you take part of that, put it in your bread, it would permeate that bread, cause it to rise, and you would keep your, you know, your sourdough starter going, and you keep going. But once a year, he's saying, at Passover... Everyone needs to toss their sourdough starters out. Like, throw them in the trash. Get rid of them. And for a solid week, eat bread that has no sourdough starter in it. No leaven. And then, start. you can start a new lump, and then you can eat leavened bread the rest of the year. But every year, there was this message, this picture that was being given to the people of Israel. What is the relationship to the Passover? What shouldn't be missed? The people are taught that the proper response to Passover is to celebrate a feast, seven days of unleavened bread. Like that's how I should respond. After the you know Passover is always followed by unleavened bread. Imagine if you did that every single year. Like it would just become, oh, Passover unleavened bread, Passover unleavened bread, Passover unleavened bread. There's a point that's being made here, again and again. And again, it is that the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on Passover and it flows out of Passover. It's very critical that the Feast of Unleavened Bread doesn't come the week before Passover because that would totally destroy the imagery that is being communicated here. It flows out of Passover. And then finally, think of the consequence of disobedience. To eat leaven during this time period is to incur severe penalty. go, whoa, I mean... A little bit of leaven and I'm kicked out of Israel forever? Like, whoa, it's harsh. Yeah, it's harsh. It's harsh because it's making a point. Because it's pointing forward to a 
a reality that is ours today. So interesting how God does that in his word. And if it was not harsh, we would miss that point, that, that the, the reality to which it is pointing. But that person has to be excommunicated, has to be banished from the people of God. And this is repeated twice for emphasis. So what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians? We, we finally got most of our pieces, and now we can go and try to build here our final points. Um, so back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. How are you all doing? You're following so far? Passover, unleavened bread. We got the pieces of the puzzle. We're going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, let's, let me just make a few parallels here. Points. Dominant characteristic in 1 Corinthians 5. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were really just a small picture of a much greater reality. Now that the ultimate Passover lamb has been sacrificed, there's a sense in which we are living in the age of unleavened bread. It's very important to grasp that, that this is the age. This is what Paul is communicating in this text, that this is the age of unleavened bread, and it doesn't end till the end of time. But Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed once for all, and now we live in the age of unleavened bread, so that the Passover and week of unleavened bread is just a small picture of a much greater reality that Christ has come once for all and we live in this age that ought to be characterized by freedom from sin. So what are some of the connections he is making here in 1 Corinthians 5? The church, we are to understand, is to be that house that is purified of leaven. So that the imagery here, I just want to draw the parallels. The church equals that house purified of leaven. Think of it as that house where the Israelites threw out the leaven. Okay, The church is also described here as a new lump. It's not just a house, but it's also the lump of dough that is free from leaven. The lump that is during that, those days of unleavened bread that has no leaven. The church is also the people who celebrate the feast by avoiding leaven. So there's multiple uh, parallels taking taking place here in this passage. But the, what is the leaven? Well, the leaven is the man who is living in immorality. And what is Paul telling the church? Kick him out. Excommunicate him, right? Take the leaven out of the church. But it's more than just this. The leaven is also, as Paul describes here in verse 8, it's every form of malice and wickedness. Because, see, the problem in the church in Corinth is not just that there is an immoral man in the midst. There is also a problem with every person in the church that they are not weeping over this sin. That they're not, right? Isn't that a problem? That they have a wrong attitude. That they're boastful, right? And and Paul is, is calling them to, yes, remove the man, but also remove the sin in their own heart. Remove the, the, the wrong attitudes, the wrong perspectives in their own life, right? Purge out, clean out the leaven from your midst. What is the relationship to Christ's sacrifice? Well, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has delivered us from the penalty and power of sin. That is through the sacrifice of Christ, we become a new people of God. A new batch of bread, free from sin's contamination. Now, Paul is always very careful to avoid legalistic language, a legalistic tone. He doesn't want to reduce Christianity to a set of rules that you have to follow that make God happy. The gospel doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. It begins with a God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Paul has to be very careful. Look again at verse 7. He has to be careful here because he says, clean out the old leaven. That is, he's saying, clean out sin, right? In a sense, clean out sin. And then he says, so that you may be a new lump. Ooh, wait a minute. Do I have to clean and and clean up my act and, and become pure so that I can become a new lump, so that I can become saved? Like, do I have to work for my salvation? Do I have to clean my act up to come to God? Oh, Paul 
Paul sees that right away, right? He says, he says, clean out the old lump so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. No, he says, no, 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 no. Clean out the old lump. Clean out the old leaven because you're already a new lump. You are already unleavened bread. Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Does that make sense? So he's very careful in the way he writes here. And so he says, and note again here, the feast does not precede the Passover, but the feast of unleavened bread follows the Passover. It's very important, right? Why do we purge out the leaven? Here's the point I'm trying to make. Why do we purge it out? Why? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Right? It follows, it flows out of the sacrifice of Christ. Why can we say no to sin? Why can we put sin to death in our lives? Why can we deal with it? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? Well, there's also consequences of disobedience. Because this age constitutes the Feast of Unleavened Bread, failure to remove leaven is a serious offense one which ultimately results in excommunication, if not dealt with, right? This is what the church is called to do. If a person will not repent of sin in their life, they are ultimately to be excommunicated from the assembly. It's pretty solemn, isn't it? It's pretty serious. So what is the application for us tonight? What are we to take away? Number one, By means of Jesus' sacrifice, we have become a new lump of dough free from the leaven of sin. I'm going to try to use this imagery. Hopefully the imagery will help you. The Feast of Unleavened Bread follows the Passover. There is cause and effect here. Think of it this way. Before you repented of your sins, before you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you were like a lump of dough that was full of yeast, full of sin, completely contaminated and affected by sin. Theologians call that total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that you were as bad as you possibly could be. It simply means that sin affected your being in every part. Every part of you, every part of me was affected by sin. But then, God, there was a day that came, I trust that this has happened to you, a day came when God has opened your eyes, opened my eyes, to the reality of our need for Jesus Christ, to the reality of our sin, right? And he's enabled us to put our faith in Christ, to to turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And the Word of God tells us that when we do that, we become united to Jesus Christ. We become one with Him. We become connected to Him. And And in that union with Jesus Christ, we participate in His death, burial and resurrection. It's very important that you grasp this. You can't really live the Christian life without grasping this super important point. In other words, God looks at you and says, there's nothing salvageable here. You know? We're such a mess that the sin has so distorted, uh, has so ruined us that there is nothing salvageable here. This is not God. God does not. Salvation is not God reforming our lives. You know, unbending. Uh, this morning we found a pole bent all the way down to the ground. It was our the pole on which our bird feeder hangs, and it was bent down. We think it was a bear that did it. But Jesus doesn't come along to unbend it, to untwist it. He comes to make it new. And so he looks at us and says, there's nothing salvageable. The only thing that we can do is take you and place you on the cross of Jesus Christ and you die. And all that sinful you dies with Christ. And then, this is the good news, is Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead and you're united to Jesus Christ, you rose from the dead and you became a new lump. A new lump that is absolutely free from the contamination of leaven, of sin. Does that make sense? Free. Absolutely free. No sin. Absolutely righteous. In the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first point we have to grasp. That because of the sacrifice of Christ, we who have put our trust in Jesus Christ become new lumps. Free from the leaven of sin. Like we have... That's that's what Scripture tells us 
I'm pulling from some other places, but that is the message. But okay, how does that work out now? Because Jesus has made us into a new lump of dough, we must actively seek to remove sin from our lives. This is where it gets tricky. (laughs) But we need to understand this. This is one of Paul's main points. This is his command here in verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you might become a new lump. As just as you actually are a new lump. Right? He's using strong language. Purge it out. Eradicate it from your life. All that is sinful, all that is evil, all that is contrary to God's character. Now, of course, in the context, Paul is speaking specifically here corporately of the church and the removal of this immoral man. I understand that. But I believe by extension, he's also referring to the need for all of us to, because we are new creations in Jesus Christ, to remove sin from our lives, to actively make an effort to kill sin in our lives, to to fight sin in our lives, right? To clean out the leaven. Well, why? Why must we clean out the old leaven? He says, because we are indeed unleavened. It's very interesting, isn't it? At this point, you might be going, wait, I don't get it. You know, I, I don't get this. I thought you just said that I was free from sin. And now you're telling me I have to get rid of sin. You know, what are you trying to say? And here's Paul's reasoning. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, get rid of sin because you are not a sinner. Do you hear the reasoning there? Get rid of sin because you are not a sinner. Purge out unrighteousness because you are indeed righteous. Remove wickedness because you are actually holy. You're actually holy. Become what you are by the grace of God. Live out the reality of what Jesus Christ has made you. Now, I want to use an illustration here. It might seem like a silly illustration, but it gets my point across. Think of a princess. Okay, here's this princess. And she's grown up always looking perfect, you know, always beautiful clothes, clean clothes, hair just right, learn to walk a certain way, you know, pristine. Here's this princess. And she has to be this way because she's a princess, right? So she has to always be sparkling and perfect. And Well, she's on a walk one day on the castle grounds and she sees this beautiful flower hanging over a muddy pond. Well, you know where I'm going, right? She reaches out to grab the flower because it's just so beautiful and she loses her balance and she falls into the pond and she becomes just totally mud, mud from head to toe. Well, what can she do? Well, she, and what would you do? <laughs> oh, walk back to the castle, right? And as she's making her way back to the castle, um, of all the people, her mother comes out. Just happened to be walking out of the castle. And her mother, of course, looks at her and says, Oh my, what has happened to you? Go take those clothes off. You're a princess. You see the point? Go take those clothes off. That's not who you are. You're a princess. You need to look pristine. You see, princesses don't wear muddy clothes. And God's people do not practice sin. Do you see the point? And so Paul is saying, get rid of the old leaven because that's not who you are. You're a princess. Well, you're, you're a new lump. You're unleavened bread. You're a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So stop this. Purge it. Deal with it. I wonder if there's leaven in our life tonight. I wonder if there are words and attitudes and actions and activities that are inconsistent with having been recreated into a new person and being a new lump of dough and being having been recreated into a whole brand new person. Are there? Well, let me answer it for us. Yes, there are. There are. There are attitudes and actions and practices that are inconsistent. Are there not in our lives inconsistent with us being unleavened bread? And so if we are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must, as my title says, we must actively seek to purge sin out of our life. We must follow his instructions here, Paul's instructions in remove, clean out the old leaven, John Owens, I love John Owens. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. 
in believers. I would recommend it to all of you if you want more on this topic. But he has a famous line where he says this, Do you mortify? Now mortify just means to kill, to put to death. Do you make it your daily work? He says, be always at it while you live. And he's talking about sin in your life, right? The, the killing, the putting to death of sin. Be all, always at it while you live. Cease not a day from his work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's quite a phrase, isn't it? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then the next fr- line I thought was fascinating. I was looking at the book and it says this, you're being dead with Christ virtually. You're being quickened with Him. This is, this is what we're talking about. The idea, that, the reality that we are unleavened bread through union with Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ. He says, it does not excuse you from this work. It does not excuse us from actively seeking to deal with sin, eradicating sin from our life. Rather, it's the opposite, is it not? It encourages us, it compels us, it energizes us from the work, right? Because it's, it's like those Israelites eating the flesh of the lamb, getting those calories in order to be able to walk out of Egypt. How do you clean out the old leaven of sin from your heart? That's a big topic. <laughs> we could go on and on and on on that topic. But I want to simplify it for you. How do you deal with sin in your life? I want to simplify it right here. Meditate upon the cross of Jesus Christ. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Meditate upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Think deeply about the cross. Read Romans. Get a sense of the seriousness of your sin by meditating upon what it cost Jesus Christ to deal with it. Meditate on the love of God in giving His Son to die. Meditate on your union with Christ, how old things have been passed, have, are passed away, and behold, all things are new. Meditate upon the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot be meditating on the cross of Christ and soon rush into sin. It would be very difficult. So what is your posture towards sin? Is it like the the Corinthians? Is it arrogance? A denial? Oh, that's not a big deal. Or is it a mourning over sin? A confession of our sin? A daily, hourly, maybe moment by moment, crying out to God for help and putting our sin to death? All right, one final point that I want to make. Because Paul ends on a positive note, and we want to end on a positive note here. There is a putting to death, but note what he says in verse 8. He says, therefore, because all this is true, he says, let us celebrate the feast. Isn't that amazing? I love that language. Let us celebrate the feast, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what's the final point? As a result, our new lives in Christ ought to be a celebration. An ongoing feast characterized by sincerity and truth. Don't you love this? Paul describes the Christian life as a life of celebration. Most people think it's the opposite. Most people think that the Christian life is a lack of celebration, it hinders celebration. Most people think of the Christian life as a boring life, a sad life, a restricted life. But my friends, let me just tell you, a holy life is a happy life. A holy life is a happy life. A godly life is the least restricted life you can live on this earth. Why? Because sin binds. Sin enslaves. You want to live an unrestricted life? Live a holy life. With what foods are we to celebrate this new feast? Well, Paul says it should be with sincerity and truth. And I find this really interesting here, right at the end. Sincerity and truth, you look at verse 8, are not the polar opposite of malice and wickedness. In other words, what Paul is saying here at the end is 
He's not saying, don't live a sinful life, live a good life. That's not what he's saying. Don't live an unholy life, live a holy life. It's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying, don't live a sinful life, but rather live an open, sincere, genuine, authentic, truthful life. It's very interesting what he does there at the end. He moves from external actions to internal motives. The word sincere speaks of something that is judged by the light of the sun. Live in such a way that you have nothing to hide. That's what he's saying. Live in such a way. That's the only life that can be a celebration. How can you celebrate if you have something to hide? Right? He's saying live in such a way that you have nothing to hide, nothing to cover up, nothing to be ashamed of. So tonight, I ask us ourselves this question, are we harboring leaven in our lives? Are we hiding any form of malice or wickedness and allowing it to ferment and infect both us and the people around us? It's a big question, isn't it? Can we, are we celebrating the feast openly? Or is there something that hinders us from celebrating that feast? I love the way it's characterized. The Christian life is a feast. It's joy. It's peace. It's righteousness, right? Leaven will hinder us from participating in the feast. Well, if there is leaven, and there often is leaven in our lives, what's the answer? Again, we move towards the light. We need to move towards exposure. We need to move towards the truth. And ultimately, we need to move to the cross, to our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. See, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? A new person. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wonderful message from God's word to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that you give to us, that you speak to us tonight. Thank you that it's a word, not a word of judgment, but a word full of hope, full of life, full of joy. Oh, Father, I ask that if there is sin tonight in our lives that has not been dealt with, would you not, oh Lord, put your finger upon it tonight? Show it to us. And point us to Christ, point us to the cross that we might be strengthened to deal with it. So that we too might be able to celebrate the feast with joy, with sincerity. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.